which about 26 or 7 years ago, I was blessed to be able to have lunch with a few professors and six or seven other students with one of our heroes in faith. His name was Bruce M. Metzger. And if you look at the front of the Oxford Annotated Revised Standard or New Revised Standard Bible, you will see that Bruce Metzger's name is alongside one other name as the editors of that Bible. He was a paradigm of faith and scholarship from Princeton uh, Seminary, and to sit at his feet was an incredible gift. We asked him about his scholarship and his faith and so forth, and as he began to talk, it became more personal, and for some reason, he began to share his own confession of how he came to understand Christ in his life. He said during his years of scholarship, he waxed and waned in studying the Bible about who Jesus was and what Jesus meant in his life. But more and more as he grew older, and he was probably in his 80s at that time, he has centered and focused on the parables of Jesus as the place where he learns not only of the culture of Jesus' time, but also of the incredible genius that Jesus had to take everyday events and everyday things like farming and marriage and money and turn them into these stories of incredible, radical, even subversive surprise. And at every case, he said, the more I study the parables, the more a sense of that radical surprise I get. We were looking at this parable at in our staff meeting, we now look at the Sunday lection for our staff meetings as our devotional, and as we shared the parable I'm about to read with you, Lois shared how when she was in seminary in Louisville, her New Testament professor, when teaching the parable, said, what you need to do in hearing parables from Jesus is to ask yourself that what question, that it should strike us with that sense of what? Did he really say that? What does that mean? This morning's parable should not just bring us to a what, but a what? It is followed by three exclamation points and three question marks. It is an imperative question, if there is such a thing. And it should really take our breath away. Some commentators have said that this parable is insoluble, which is to say that it is so dense and complex it is beyond our understanding. So good luck. It comes to us from the 16th chapter of Luke, beginning in the first verse, right after the three parables of the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the two lost sons, the prodigal son story. Immediately following that is this parable known as the unjust steward or the dishonest servant or lots of other names. Jesus said to his disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this manager was squandering his property. So he summoned him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Give me an accounting of your management, because you cannot be my manager any longer. Then the manager said to himself, What will I do now? 
My master has taken the position away from me, and I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what I will do next. When I am dismissed as manager, people may welcome me into their homes. So, summoning his master and the debtors, his master's debtors, one by one, he asked the first, So, how much do you owe my master? And he answered, A hundred jugs of olive oil. And he said, Take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it fifty. Then he asked another, And how much do you owe the master? And he replied, A hundred containers of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and make it eighty. And his master commended him, the dishonest manager, because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age, Jesus said, are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth, so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into their own eternal homes. So ends the reading of the word. What? Here's the modern day translation. It's a small town like Bedford Falls, only the story is sort of opposite. A rich man in town owns almost everything, including the bank. And the bank is the only bank that issues mortgages, and so all the homes are mortgaged to that bank, and the, and the bank owner charges high levels of interest for those mortgages because he's the only game in town. And then he begins to issue credit cards to go along with it to all the people in town, and so they, like all of us, over-leverage themselves and spend more money than they have. It turns out that the credit cards have about a 23.5% interest rate that continues to rise and rise. And so all the people are trying to pay off their interest rate, which they can't because it's so high. And therefore, they cannot pay off their balance. They get underwater. At that point, the man who owns the bank, using the manager of the bank to do all this work, then takes over the homes that he forecloses home and rents them back to the people in town for a higher uh rent charge and he was charging for the mortgage. Now he's got them. His manager does all the work, collects all the money, does all the stuff. All of a sudden, the rich man who owns the bank hears that his manager had been playing way too much golf and pilfering a little bit off the top. And so he calls his manager into his office and he says, people have been telling me what you've been doing and therefore you're out of here. The manager, knowing not what else to do because he can't dig ditches and he doesn't have any computer skills, decides to work out this deal. So he says, I'm going back to all the people that owe money to the bank through their interest and loans as well as their credit cards, and I'm going to tell them they can cut that interest in half, which he does. That makes them very happy, of course. He's now in their good graces. When the owner of the bank, and that is the major political and uh, uh, power uh, person in town, hears of all this, he closes the bank down, closes the street down, and decides to have a parade with the bank manager sitting on the back of the biggest convertible in town, driving down the street with the owner of the bank commending him for what he has just done. 
Go figure. A philosopher, it is said, is someone who stirs up the dust and then complains that no one is able to see clearly. That being true, biblical scholars and commentators have stirred up more dust on this parable than a 1930s windstorm in Oklahoma. Some say it's a sweet little morality tale about how we are supposed to use our money. That is to say, it should always be in circulation. That's why coins are round, so they'll keep rolling. Some say it is, whether by ill-gotten gained or earned with hard work, calling us to be shrewd with how we use God's possessions in the kingdom, and especially how we give it away to care for the poor and the down and out, for God is keeping the heavenly books and will balance things out in the end. We often and mostly feel that way, that God's got some grand ledger in wherever God is and is sort of keeping the books on us. And we hope that we end up more in the heavenly black side than in the hellish red side when it's all said and done. And so we all know that we struggle with this about what's enough. How do we measure up to that final ledger? Now there's some of us who make money the hard way. We earn it and some of us who've gotten money not so easy, uh, uh, with so much labor. It's just come to us in ways we were unexpecting. And there are even some of us here who probably made a dollar or two with ill-gotten gain. There's nothing like ill-gotten gain to make the church coffers grow and grow. We're buying our way back. When I first got to Covenant Church in Atlanta in 1990, there was a major issue on the table that I inherited. One of our big giving church members had just been put in prison because he was a lawyer executor of a lot of estates that it turns out he was pilfering from for his own advantage as well as giving enormous amounts of cash to Covenant Church. The big question for the session was, do we give it back? And if so, how? We're not sure out of which accounts. It occurred to me when I visited this man and talking to him that he knew he was guilty, but he, feel like he, he felt like he owed God and the church something nevertheless. He's working the balance sheet. Now there's, it's got to be true for us that as we read Luke's gospel, as we've been doing ever since, I don't know when was it, the beginning of the summer, that we've come to understand that Luke is concerned primarily with two everyday events, eating and money. Luke reminds us that Jesus' heart is always for the poor and that those of us who are rich are called to care for them. In Luke's version of the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are the poor, period. In Matthew's version, it's blessed are the poor in spirit. Luke adds in his Beatitudes the woes, and what he says is, blessed are the poor, woe to the rich. Bam. Luke's version of the gospel says, there are lost coins and prodigal sons and Lazarus and Dives and the rich young ruler, all of which are parables and stories about how we deal with money. And in Acts, Luke's second 
version of his book, his gospel, his second chapter, the early church, in a real sort of basic socialized way, sells everything they have, throws it in the kitty, and they all share in common. Luke has a very strong uh, sense of the responsibility for us as Christians about how we deal with money. Let me tell you, this is not a stewardship se- uh, season sermon, by the way, because that doesn't start till October. But let me also say that every sermon is a stewardship sermon, and this one included. Luke's Jesus knew how to stir up a dust storm, and he did so by talking about money and politics which is probably why he was crucified. As Christians, there is no doubt a definite expectation that we be generous and gracious with our possessions. In fact, we truly do believe that God keeps store on us, that God keeps this ledger. We know it. We think we know it. But that's not what this parable is all about. Let me emphasize it. N-O-T, not what this parable is about. Jesus' parables are never straightforward little morality tales as much as our liberal or conservative sweet little hearts want to make them so. In fact, this parable, as with every parable, is what throws that kind of straightforward morality tale upside down, inside out, and surprises us every time with something so radical, all we can do is say, what? What did the manager do here? He forgave. And what did he forgive? Debts. He forgives debts. He forgives debts he had even no right to forgive for all the wrong reasons to save himself. For personal gain, he forgives Whether honest or dishonest gain, just or unjust, he forgives. And what he forgives, again, is debt. And Luke is not just talking about mammon or money. He's talking about that thing in all of us that keeps score. You do. I do. From the moment we wake up in the morning, we are scorekeeping according to whatever standard that we keep score with. How am I living up to this standard? Is it the standard that was imposed upon me by my parents? Is it the standard that is imposed on me by my church? It is the standard imposed on me by whatever other imposition there is out there. It is some standard. Am I nice enough? Am I good enough? Am I liked enough? Am I smart enough? Am I good looking enough? Whatever the standard is, we all do it. And the parable tells us that all of that debt that we accumulate about ourselves is forgiven. Maybe it's a standard we have toward another person, the standard we have that they should live up according to my way of doing things. They're not living up to that. They've slighted me. I didn't get an invitation to their party, or maybe I did get an invitation, which means, of course, now I'm obligated to invite them back to my party. We're still living by the keeping up with the ledger standard. All the debt 
has been forgiven, the parable says. For Luke and for us, it is a radical explanation about the grace, unmerited, unbelievable, subversive grace of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I tend to like hold a grudge or two from time to time. It's not my best part of myself, I'll be willing to admit, but I do hold a grudge or two. Uh, and, and, you know, and sometimes I envision what I'd really like to see happen to that person uh, in my imagination. Uh, and then I'd, oh, John, I'm, please forgive me, but it feels so good. We're like computer hard drives. Once it gets imprinted, it just doesn't get reformatted. It's there, especially when it comes to grudges. Talk about holding account. We hold more grudges, this is a joke, than the House of Representatives. I thought that was good. We carry them around like valuable possessions, taking them out of our lockboxes, looking at them and admiring them and massaging them from time to time, knowing that they're worth real, real capital when we decide to cash them in. In the end, of course, these grudges only imprison us like acid that eats away at the inside of whatever container we're holding it in or like eating rat poison thinking that we are killing the rats. It was Confucius who said, before you embark on a journey of revenge, dig two graves. Remember again what Luke said. When he said, this is the way you pray, forgive us our debts as we are forgiven our debtors. It's Matthew who says trespasses. It's we good Presbyterian Scots who say debts as Luke did for a reason. And this parable is about this unbelievable forgiving of all the debt that we feel by the hand of God's grace. In this parable, everybody wins. The people win, they get forgiven. The manager wins, he gets taken back into the arms of a job. The owner of the bank wins because the next day when he gets to work, he finds that all the people are lined up at his bank to invest more money in him because the manager has made him look like an actually good person. It's not an allegory here, it's a parable, so don't like put God in all the little places you're trying to put him. It's meant to just blow us out of the water. The radical nature of God's grace is that God forgives our debt, even when it appears to be unjust to do so. The prodigal son done nothing to receive it. He comes home wanting a deal, and his father throws him a party. As we are forgiven like this, we are then able to forgive others like this. And inasmuch as we have received this grace, are we able to be gracious? We get this. We don't have to ask anybody, 40 people, to sign up to go serve meals for Haiti. We get this. 
There's going to be a trampling mob to get to that list to put our names on it because of the deep sense of gratitude we feel for what God has done. Now, I know this parable's not easy, but and, and I also know that we're the first to say, you know, the world works by balance sheets. It doesn't work like God just unjustly forgiving our debts, even when we deserve it or don't deserve it. The world works differently. That's why our first reaction to this parable is, what? So here's a little story I'll tell you I think that's equally radical. And it's going to blow your socks off. This is how the world works. In 1986, Michele Mubumbi, this came to me in an email from a lawyer friend, by the way. Michele Mubumbi was on holiday in Kenya after graduating from Northwestern University, and as he was hiking through uh, the forest of Kenya, he came into a clearing where he saw a young bull elephant standing alone with his front leg raised. You could tell that he was holding it up gingerly. Makumbe was scared of the elephant, but he also was uh, had a sense of compassion for him, so he carefully walked his way to the elephant and knelt down beside him, looked at the elephant's foot and discovered there was a large piece of wood that had wedged itself within the foot. And so he took out his hunting knife and scared that he would be trampled, dug the wood out, and the elephant then put his foot on the ground several times up and down gingerly. At that point, the elephant walked away and turned and looked at him and raised his trunk with this giant trumpet sound and then turned and walked off. Move forward 20 years, Mukimbe, excuse me, Bubimbe is in Chicago visiting the Chicago Zoo with his teenage son when he happens upon the elephant exhibit. And he looks out and there's this old bull elephant standing there who looks up at him and begins to look deeply into his face just as that young bull elephant had done 20 years before, raises his trunk and lets out a tremendous trumpet burst, then walks over to where Mukumbe uh, was uh, standing at the rail. Mukumbe at that point thought, this is the elephant. And so he climbs over the rail, gets down in front of the elephant, and they're looking at each other face to face. And the elephant reaches out his trunk, get ready for this, grabs Mukumbe by the leg, and slams him against the rail, killing him instant. What? The bottom line of the story as it was sent to me was, must not have been the same elephant. <laughs> now turn that tragic story with a tragic ending upside down for the radical surprise of grace that God brings to us when the opposite happens. And you'll get it. Is God just? We better hope not. Let us bring forth the gifts of our lives and our labors.